Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagolani Albov. This month, we're really excited to be joined by Sergio Sauer, who is actually in University of Helsinki as a visiting scholar right now at Global Development Studies. I definitely can't do justice to his breadth of experience, so I think the best thing to do is to turn the floor over right away because we want to use every moment we have with him to hear from him. So Sergio, would you like to tell us who you are and what you do? Hi, Sophia, you're really kind, and I want to really thank you both, Chris and, and you, for this invitation and for this uh, talk. Like you said, I'm currently at the University of Helsinki, but I'm professor at the University of Brasilia, in Brasilia, in Brazil. But I'm uh, being uh, not just a scholar or researcher, but also an activist in rural and agrarian issues. Uh, since I, my graduation, I've been working as advisor, sometimes just an activist uh, with the agrarian social movements in Brazil, in particular with the Dengelis uh, Peasants Movement, MST, but also some several others. And in the university or part of my my job as a professor, research is just uh, to research and study uh, the social movements in Brazil. That means um, I'm also very much into the land struggle, the social movements, but also some other uh, not so well known uh, movements like the Quilombos movement. It's a movement with Afro-descendants that people was brought from Africa as slaves to, to Brazil. And so the connect with the theme of land, they also uh, also struggling for, you know, against racism and uh, fighting for their, their, what do we call, uh, territorial rights. So basically that's uh, what I'm doing lately. I'm, also research on land grabbing and rural development connected with one key issue in the, in the moment that this is climate change or environmental issues because um, Brazil unfortunately has been uh, one of the countries that uh, being our agrarian and rural economic activities has been very bad for the environment. We can talk about that uh, also later. Thank you so much. And you said so much there that's, that's really interesting. And I guess one of the things that I would like to do is kind of like start at the beginning. So how did you end up getting into, I guess, land rights activism? And were, were you an activist before you became a scholar or was it vice versa? Like how, how did you get into this area? Very good point, Chris. Um, I was just graduating from my theology course. So I'm a theologian as, a, as a, my primary uh, uh, graduation. And I went to, to work in middle 1980s in what we call a, a agriculture frontier. So it was a, a region uh, uh, economically very uh, uh, developed but uh, at the same time, expansion, particularly over soya, was really uh, growing. And 
was expelling a lot of people out of their land, particularly small farmers. So when I started working there, just one year after the creation of the landless peasants movement. So as a younger professional, I was curious to know about what this land struggle is about. So I got really involved in this uh, settlement near the city when I was uh, based uh, in 8687. So then I started to visiting the families, the settled families, and they are started asking help uh, since I was educated. So they asked if I could help them to read stuff, to um, draft documents, help them to uh, build the project for uh, accessing that time, it, they had a special credit from the government for us settled families to help to start producing, building their houses and so on. So that was uh, the way it started. The beginning was like, you know, someone just graduated young, committed to the idea that we need justice in, in the countryside. That was started. And then I started getting involved with MST, but also this pastoral commission on land. It was a ecumenical uh, pastoral work involving my uh, Lutheran church and the Catholic church, helping the, the landless peasants, uh, landless families in the state of Parna. That, that was the way it started. And from there, I started to, to kind of, you know, trying to understand better why we had so many landless families in states like Paraná, south of Brazil, very, very rich in terms of uh, agriculture production, exporting beef, exporting soya and so on. So then I started to understand why Brazil uh, has this so unequal development, uh, particularly in the countryside, and why the families were struggling for land. That was uh, where it started. And then after that, I became a national advisor for this Pastoral Commission on Land. So I moved to Goiânia, central Brazil, and from there I went to work in this national confederation of rural workers trade unions. So it's kind of, you know, the activism was bringing me into this job. And I also was really eager to understand for more like theoretical or, or academic perspective that uh, led me to my master's studies in Norway. So I did my master's studies in philosophy of religion, but trying to understand the theological meaning of land for Brazilian people. That was mainly how I got into these more scholar activist activities. That sounds like a really interesting trajectory. It's always amazing when you actually like ask people about kind of the path they've taken. You know, there's so many different ways to get to like this place that we find ourselves in the universities. You know, there's no one path. So uh, I really appreciate you taking us a bit through the different both subject focuses and also like the interplay of the activism and the scholarly work, which are really, you know, at the end of the day, they're two sides of the same coin, perhaps. 
for our listeners, I'm sure there's many, many people out there who are quite familiar with the um, Brazilian landless workers movement, but I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what the Brazilian landless workers movement, like what kind of it is and what kind of resistances are involved there. I guess that's a bit about maybe the agricultural geography. Good point, Sophia. I, um, quickly, uh, uh, going back to the, the history, when when Brazil in 1964 has this military coup, one of the reasons for the, the coup, for you know the military taking over the power and, and spelling out uh, the democratic elected president, was one, according to several studies, they uh, were trying to avoid the agrarian reform. Uh, becoming a political issue because there was in the end of 1950s, beginning 1960s, already social movements, particularly in northeast of Brazil, people, uh, workers from the sugarcane mills or small farmers that didn't have access to land, they start to get immobilized demanding land. And it was huge demonstrations uh, in uh, some places, including Sao Paulo, uh, including uh, uh, Brasilia or uh, Recife and so on. So then the military took over uh, and they, they to solve the social problem of demanding land, they put up this plan for what they call rural development based on the implementation of Green Revolution. So then the military governments in the 1670s, they gave out a lot of public credit for the large farmers to buy tractors, seeds, um, chemicals to implement the Green Revolution. So from the, the economic perspective, it was successful because you know they started really producing soya, producing cattle, corn, and so on. But in spite of solving the social demand for land, it aggravates it because a lot of small farmers uh, was expelled from their land in the South. So then one of the largest social problems was the demand for land or, or, or lack of access to land in Northeast became also a problem in the South. So a lot thousands of farmer families moved to the cities. So then they, they became inhabitants of slum areas in, in urban areas, or moved to the north, to the Amazon, looking for land. Because the land was cheaper, because the government was offering land for those, uh, their, their government saying was land without people for the landless people. So they, they said that the Amazon region or the Amazon was empty. So that all those who want a piece of land didn't need to fight for land or demand land in the South. They can just move to the North and they'll get land. So that was the historical and social basis for uh, when late in 1980s, uh, the democratization process started, the social movements reorganized themselves, uh, demanding again 
uh, access to land in South, in Sao Paulo states or anywhere in Brazil. That was the way that uh, the MST was uh, created in 84, uh, 85. And together with the MST, several others, we say that Brazil had a few years ago around 70 different agrarian social movements uh, fighting for land uh, in Brazil. That was the, the basic. The MST is uh, very well known because they were really well organized, especially in states in the South, that the farmers, uh, small farmers or landless farmers, they were more familiar with working together with a cooperative uh, system or cooperation activities. So then they kind of get better organized in the South and were successful in terms of occupying land and actually transforming those occupied land in uh, settlement projects. So that's basically historical roots for the social movements. And then, of course, in 90s and 2000, they also got better organized in states like Sao Paulo. Since Sao Paulo is a rich state, we say everything that happens in Sao Paulo happens in, in Brazil. So then the social movements get more well-known by the society in general because, you know, they were occupying and struggle for land in Sao Paulo State. And uh, that, was, that was the 90s. And then they were well-known, but also um, uh, were able to push the government to create uh, several uh, projects in Sao Paulo, in, in other states. And of course, now the MST and other are nationally organized movements with, uh, you know, well-known leadership that are always standing uh, and demanding land or new settlements. So then it's a political demand, not, not in the sense of a political part, but in terms of really being part of the political agenda in, in Brazil uh, since late 80s. The last thing I could say related to that, unfortunately, it's a huge country, but the land distribution is very unequal. There's no precise numbers, but uh, some studies, some scholars saying that if we consider the landless families living in slum areas, landless families uh, camping out, demanding land, very small uh, farmers. Uh, Brazil would have around 5 million landless families. So that's a lot of people, right, that is directly or indirectly demanding land. That's one reason agrarian reform or um, land reform is still a, a burning issue. Uh, in, in Brazil, even today. Thank you for all that. And thank you for that last point, especially because that, was, that gets into something that I, I wanted to ask about. I mean, when you're talking about the land without people for landless people, it sounds very settler colonialist in its way. And so I wanted to ask more about this. Like, what is this different type of land like? I presume if they're telling people move up north into the Amazon, that land can't be nearly as nice as the land that is in the south where people are already living, which I'm presuming is probably dominated by larger, more corporate farms. And I'm curious as well about the movement of people and I guess the kind of indigenous aspect too. 
especially given all this inequality, there's always usually so many different sociocultural aspects to it. Very good. Um, like I said, I think it's it's very important. Since the demands for land were more concentrated in the South, where the process of occupying land during the colonial period was based on European migrants from Germany, from Italy, from Poland, uh, Hungary. Particular, uh, the states of Rio Grande do Sul and Santa Catarina were really states uh, based uh, the economy, but also the land uh, being farming by small uh, farmers. But this, those small farmers, their, their families grow, right? Because they had children and grandchildren. And so then they're kind of becoming landless in term, because you know there was not enough land for the whole family. So then that was kind of a social source of uh, land demand in the South. And then the military government said, well, if these people move to the North, to the Amazon, they will not bother politically us uh, because they, you know, they have access to land in the Amazon. Uh, and also the Northeast, because of the, the uh, colonial period, particularly the use of land for sugarcane production. There was a lot of families working the sugar mills, but they don't actually possess or have access to land. They are working as rural workers. So also those people are demanding land and the government said, well, if you move to the Amazon, it would be, you'll be farmer also there. So in the beginning, and then they actually set uh, what we call in Portuguese uh, colony projects or projects for colonization. So there's a lot of families moving from the south and northeast to into the Amazon. And of course, they are eager to work and, you know, to make a living, but they were practically abandoned there. So they moved to a region. They, they were not familiar with the climate. They were not familiar with the disease. There was a lot of tropical disease like malaria and others. And also the land was very good, fertile soil, rain half of the year, the forest, a lot of wood and timber, but they were not able to uh, sell their production because there was, there was no roads. They are, some, some of the families were like 200, 300 kilometers out of the nearest uh, village or the nearest uh, local market with unpaid roads or sometimes not even roads, real roads. So then after a while, we say that the conflict for Northeast and the conflicts from the South just move to the Amazon. So there was starting a lot of conflicts, uh, social conflicts in the Amazon because the people are demanding credit, uh, housing, uh, education. And uh, that was one uh, big done. At the second, the Amazon was never empty, you know, right? indigenous groups, uh, but also along the colonial period, uh, particularly along the rivers, there was a lot of communities, people navigating through the rivers and building small villages and farming or, you know, extracting uh, fish or, you know, uh, uh, fruits from the Amazon, rubber, uh, and so on. So the, when the, this 
families move to the, the north, start conflicts with those who are already located there, indigenous groups or this, what we call river dwellers communities. Together with these uh, small families, also the government gave a lot of incentives for the large farms to move to the, the So there was a lot of uh, deforestation, particularly for uh, raising cattle. So then a new source of conflict started, uh, particularly in, in states like Acre. Uh, everybody uh, heard sometime Shikomendi's assassination. He was a rap-tapper uh, in Acre, and then the large farmers, cattle raisers uh, from Sao Paulo moved to Acre, and they started turning down the forest because they wanted to, you know, to, to have pasture for the cattle. So then another source of conflict. So then Amazon region in general, particularly the states of Acre, Rondonia, Mato Grosso, and Pará became the main territories of uh, conflicts over land because of the indigenous groups, but also because of this uh, large farmers that move in and they, they got a lot of financial incentives to turn down the forest and set these large cattle rangers uh, in the Amazon. Beware anytime people say that land is empty. I mean, that's, um, that's so... Ooh, like there's so much there and that's played out so many times in so many different places. Like, I don't know, I don't know where this conceptualization comes from, you know, that, oh, it's empty there. Like, don't worry. Like, yeah, I'm glad that you touched on the communities that were existing there. Cause when I heard you say that that was kind of the, the government's attitude, my first thought was, well, <laughs> what do the people of the Amazon think about that? So what happened? <laughs> like, what kind of conflicts were there? And what kind of, like, I mean, are these conflicts still ongoing? Or, I mean, the 80s was a long time ago. No, I'm just joking. I'm yeah. <laughs> but um, have, have some of these conflicts resolved themselves? Have they deepened? Like, what's going on? Yeah, good point, Sophia. Uh, first of all, I think uh, this, this uh, narrative of empty land is my understanding it's it's a political narrative to remove the rights from those who are there so because if you say it's empty so it means you don't recognize the existence of people there that means there is no rights so then the land can be can be uh, taken used and uh, you know grabbed by those uh, outsiders right that that's that's the basic thing so it's a clear denial of the the, the, the people's existence one and then denying the existence you deny the rights well, anyway um, like I said from the very beginning there was the conflicts uh, so let's say the Amazonian people didn't go you know easy because they are tribes, so they are starting right away uh, resisting to the occupation of their territories. But there was, unfortunately, there was a lot of killing. The Brazilian history in terms of the destruction of indigenous um, ethnical groups and culture is, it's, um, I could say it's, uh, 
not just a humanitarian, it's a, a human uh, crime. Together with the idea of the, the empty land, the idea was we need to integrate the Amazon into the national economy. And to do that, the, the military government uh, set development plans. One of them was to, to build these huge roads. One was the Transamazonica Road that's supposed to go across the, the whole Amazon. But this, to building this road, besides turning down the forest and bringing people in from the south or northeast, there was this, this road was going through already uh, recognized or uh, existing uh, indigenous uh, groups, the territory. So there was a lot of killing, really literally killing, shutting uh, the leadership, but also some terrible uh, things that he did in the United States, the distributing blankets or clothes with virus. The indigenous still now, they don't have the same anti-corpse uh, that we had for like flu virus. And so there's a lot of people dying indigenous groups dying, or some of them were removed completely from their land to other places that they didn't know. Some of the tribes were forced to move into the territory with their historical enemies. So some of the tribes starting to fight each other or, or at least trying to accommodate. But it's very, it was very hard because historically they were, you know, not enemy, but, you know, uh, adversaries or, or different language, different culture, different ways of living and so on. So all this happens in 70s and 80s, but most of the tribes were able to organize themselves and, you know, keep resisting. So now the conflict is still going on. Unfortunately, they have this annual uh, camping out in Brasilia, uh, this year was one of the largest, uh, was over 6,000 indigenous leaders gathered in Brasilia in April, demonstrating against the government, demonstrating against the expansion of, you know, um, the agriculture frontier, mining, because the current president wants to allow uh, mining in indigenous territories, which is uh, uh, forbidden by the constitution. So he wants to change the constitution to allow the indigenous territory be exploited or, you know, uh, uh, mining and also uh, monocultures, uh, lease or rent the, the land for monoculture. So, so they're mainly in Brasilia, two weeks in April, marching and demonstrating against the government, demanding that their land and territories being uh, protected and controlled from invaders. So the conflict is still going on. Unfortunately, Pará state uh, is uh, the most conflictuous state uh, in, in Brazil. Most of the conflicts are over land and more recently also uh, related to other, uh, let's say, elements of nature, like, for example, uh, people uh, trying, uh, activists trying to protect uh, indigenous land, but also the national forest, um, uh, we call uh, conservation units and so on. So um, 
So the conflict is still, when we say the land conflict, uh, we, we should understand land, not just uh, the land for agriculture, but all this territory that is connected with uh, the Amazon, the nature, protecting the forest, protecting the animals, protecting uh, uh, the indigenous lands. And so on. So, unfortunately, say the conflict is still going on to, to directly answer you. Um, but, um, but I would say it's important that we recognize that the social uh, resistance has been uh, successful in terms of keeping uh, saved part of the Amazon, uh, particularly the indigenous territories. Thank you so much for that. It's chilling to hear a lot of that. I mean, you know, especially coming from the U.S., we grew up hearing about, you know, smallpox blankets and things like that as a, a thing of the, you know, maybe 17th century or 18th century, although I, I'm sure it happened much more afterwards. I just didn't talk about it much in our history classes. But I mean, to think of it in the 1970s of someone handing out a diseased blanket and then going to listen to a you know Jackson 5 album is scary and I have kind of two aspects of questions but I guess I'll, I'll zoom in on the first here and then maybe we can come back to the, the second later uh, when you mentioned when the land is conceptualized as empty it's able to be grabbed and you talked about before how this was with a lot of like cattle and then you also mentioned like monocultures and mining opening up now before it seemed like you were talking more about domestic companies or industries doing this. Who's doing this now? Is this mostly still some sort of, or I mean, perhaps I was wrong before, but is, is this mostly domestic big companies coming in for uh, cattle and monocultures? Or are we looking more at an internationalized land grabbing? Okay. Good, Chris. Um, well, if we go back to history, like for example, we had cases. Uh, of, um, like I said, government gave a lot of incentives for the, 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 let's say the urban companies, banks and McDonald's, Volkswagen, to invest in the Amazon. So the, the financial incentive was like this, uh, like for example, Volkswagen had uh, around uh, one farm uh, 70,000 hectares in uh, Parai State. Um, it was not profitable for uh, uh, Volkswagen uh, to have that land in the Amazon because they are, you know, their main uh, productive activities is building cars, right? Making cars. But the government did this. If they invest in the Amazon, they will get... Um, tax-free or, you know, cut uh, the taxes related to the industry, the industry. So then a lot of uh, multinationals and national companies, like I mentioned, it, it's not uh, just example, it's a, it's a concrete case. McDonald's uh, bought land in the Amazon and put some cattle there because then they get, you know, uh, uh, fiscal incentives uh, for their production in Sao Paulo or Rio. Volkswagen the same. A lot of the banks also. So, so there is there is a lot of between quotation marks investments in the Amazon by these large companies, 
national and multinational companies because not because they're interested in producing in Amazon, but then they will get, you know, uh, rent and uh, profit uh, out of their activities because of uh, tax breaks and and um, access to uh, credit uh, for low interest and so on. That so then, then answer you. So there was domestic large farmers, for instance, but also uh, multinational and national companies uh, moving in uh, the Amazon. More recently, more recently, um, because of the international demand uh, of commodities like soya, uh, there is still a lot of foreign investments, but not so much in the Amazon, but also uh, in our other region, or let's say another agriculture frontier or biome that we call Cerrado. Um, everybody there's listening to us, when we say Amazon, everybody knows what is it, where is it, right? But the second largest uh, Brazilian biome is Cerrado. Cerrado means uh, a dense forest. But Cerrado, it's the combination as a savanna, but not an uh, a forest. And is just next to the, the Amazon. And it's the second largest. And uh, um, since there are more uh, environmental protection laws for the Amazon, the largest investment also in 1970s and 1980s move or were more intense in the Cerrado region, particularly and now in the, these four states that we call Mato Piba, this Maranhão, part of state of Maranhão, Piauí, Tocantins and Bahia. It's flatland, it's a forest, but it's not as large as the uh, rainforest. So it's easier to turn it down and burn it. So this combination of, again, empty land, I, will, I, I come back to that later, um, but also uh, flatland, so it's easier for mechanization, for using tractors. Um, it's a plateau, so it's, it's large, flat, highland, with good water, it rains, uh, it's all, and are not so far from the ports. So then uh, building roads and building ports to export, like for example, soya or to export the, the cattle, uh, makes a good business. So Matopiba is our newest and largest uh, agriculture frontier with a lot of investments from uh, multinational companies, from United States, from um, uh, Spain, from Netherlands, from China, from uh, Argentina, mainly uh, for the production of soya to export to Europe or to China. And uh, so then it's an, like an answer direct to your question. So, domestic, but also a lot of multinational investors um, now 
turning down the Cerrado forest uh, to, to cultivate soya for exporting to, to China or to not so much United States because United States is a soya producer, but particular to China, but also to Europe. Um, so that's, uh, that's the newest, let's say, rural development process or uh, agribusiness expansion uh, in terms of um, investments, foreign and national investments in, in Brazil. And what's your second question? Thank you so much for that. And I mean, yeah, I learned so much there. And just as an aside, I mean, like when you're saying Volkswagen owning farms, I mean, I had heard about them and or maybe it was BMW being one of the largest sausage producers in the world. But like, uh, I mean, that's just absolutely astounding to me. But I, uh, for the second question, like going back, I kind of wanted to touch into something perhaps uh, uh, on a lighter note, because, you know, we always end up getting into these really sad aspects. But you had mentioned about this, how social resistance has been successful. And I wanted to dive into that more. Like, how have they been successful? Has there been certain modalities or like particular areas that they've been especially successful or like lessons that can come out of it um, more broadly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, uh, uh, <clears throat> when, when I say success mean, doesn't mean that everything's solved, right? But it means, means victories or at least uh, achievements. One of the achievements uh, we have to recognize is that uh, beside or in spite of having almost 5 million landless families around Brazil, we have around official figures, around 1 million families settle in uh, 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 settlement projects. So they struggle, they occupy land, they demand land, and now they are settled. They are uh, family farmers uh, producing and there are, there are really interesting experiences. Uh, for example, in my state, in the Rio do Sul state, there's uh, one the settlement that is producing uh, uh, organic rice. They are the largest uh, organic rice producers in Latin America, all done by this uh, families that struggle for land led by the MST and and now they are you know producing cultivating and, and trying to uh, promote uh, organic uh, agriculture so then you know that 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 could be mentioned as one uh, nice achievement of victory right uh, so then one victory or, or achievement is like at least around 1 million families are uh, had the right to access land around Brazil. Of course, then there's a lot of problems in a lot of settlements, like for example, uh, a lot of these settlements, uh, one of the, the, the conquer, legal conquer, or the right they conquer was that when they are settled, the government should uh, uh, handle hand out some credit for them to build their house in the in the in the far, in the farm in the in the 
plot in the settlements, right? So a lot of families still uh, building their own houses uh, on the farm because they didn't access the credit. Just an example to say that still demands or uh, new victories to be achieved, but uh, we, I personally consider a great achievement that people actually got the right and access land and they are producing and they are cultivating and like the example I gave, that's one. Second, uh, like I mentioned, uh, a lot, particularly in uh, 90s, but especially in 2000, uh, the national government recognized a lot of uh, indigenous territory. So there is there is a lot, it's not enough, it's still a lot of uh, indigenous groups uh, fighting for their land, but they, but there's still um, a lot of uh, territories being recognized, demarcated. And uh, so then I would say that's also a, a achievement, right? Third, um, these uh, quilombolas, these uh, Afro-Brazilian uh, descendants, they also uh, uh, got uh, rights. And uh, so there is a lot of quilombolas territory uh, recognized and demarcated uh, around Brazil. That, that's, uh, I think that is very important. Again, all these territories being threatened, some of them being invaded, uh, like, for example, not so far from Brasilia, where I live, is the largest uh, quilombola territory of the world. It's uh, over 110,000 hectares that is demarcated and um, the rights recognized by over 1,000, I don't remember how, how many families that are Afro-descendants living there from 17th, 18th century. So um, that, that would be in now with the expansion of soya, the soya is getting into their land, there is invasions, there are people destroying their forests. But anyway, so um, it, it's a, a good example of uh, another achievement. The, the last one to not make so long, um, according to Brazilian legal framework, uh, related to environmental issues or environmental um, rights, there is what we call uh, uh, cons uh, conservation unit of uh, for sustainable use. Means it's, it's national forest, national park that is created, demarcated, and protected, but the people still living on those areas, uh, working in in harmony or trying to work in harmony with nature. Like for example, rub tappers in, in the Amazon. So there's a lot of, uh, they call extractive reserves that is officially recognized is their land and they can live there and make their living out of the, of the, the forest, you know, uh, extracting, uh, fruits, uh, rubber, and so on. So if I put all this together, it's, um, it's, it's a lot of land being conquered by those uh, groups and 
and uh, fighters or, or uh, people that resisting the expansion of agriculture frontier or land grabbing. Thank you for giving us some insight into that. I mean, I do appreciate your question, Christopher, that, you know, we, we, gosh, especially when I'm asking the question, sometimes I feel like I really swirl around um, kind of the existential implications of the extractive logic and how it's killing everything and all of life, which it is sometimes often, um, but it is good to like take a moment to pause and like reflect on some of the achievements, um, which even if the overarching kind of problem isn't yet solved, those achievements within are so important and definitely important to give light and, you know, reflection to, because if, if that's possible, then other achievements are possible, even if we don't have them all today. It's a good point, Sophia. The discussion uh, here at University of Helsinki with uh, some uh, colleagues uh, and me, because we have this, with I tend to agree with this um, concept uh, or conceptual framework, uh, extractivism as a very bad predatory um, economic activities, right? Like, for example, mining. Um, or extracting wood, turning down the whole forest and so on. And because the, the notion of extractivism is this idea that like the, the word say extracts means grab everything, doesn't leave anything uh, in terms of natural resources or even uh, social uh, gains, right? So I tend to, to use this concept to understand or to explain or to study a lot of, uh, I, would, I say, capitalist activities in, in countryside in Brazil or on a forest in, in Brazil, right? Mining, um, uh, these huge monocultures that put a lot of chemicals and exhaust the, the soil, exhaust the, the water and so on. So this Clearly, it's extractive in a destructive way. Right? You just, you know, take out the, the whole richness of nature and just leave nothing there. Only degraded soil, forest destroyed, burned, and so on. But the contradiction is that in Latin American general, but particularly in Brazil, this is called uh, traditional communities or traditional people, including indigenous tribes, indigenous groups. They call their activities also extractive. Like, for example, the rock tappers, you know, they fought for to preserve the, the forest, to preserve their uh, economic activities or productive activities, and they call extractive reserves. But then, or according to our, to our environmental laws, this conservation unit is for sustainable use. The sustainable use is mainly uh, extractive, collecting fruits, collecting wood, um, uh, combining the breeding of small animals with the, the forest and so on. So I think one of the, our, uh, academic challenge is how we we distinguish this 
capitalist destructive extractivism from activities that is being historically done by these local groups, traditional people, that also is extractive, but is not destructive. Conceptually, we have this contradiction. That's, that's my point. And then I think it's something that is a challenge for us as scholars. It's a challenge for us in terms of how we conceptualize or understand these destructive uh, activities uh, uh, and differentiate from what the people are doing. Like, for example, the, the last uh, COP, um, some, of, some of the groups clearly said, if you look if you look at uh, countries in Latin America or Africa, environmentally speaking, the most preserved territories are those who are occupied by indigenous groups, traditional families or traditional communities and so on. So they say conservation is also part of our human activities or presence in these places. Ah, yes, the clumsiness sometimes of language where it's like it's hard sometimes to get at these terms because some of those activities are extractive, but they're not necessarily extractivism, but then extractive and extractivism feel you know, very close unless you like really get into them. And yeah, so I totally hear you with that, uh, that kind of clumsiness of the language and trying to uh, find, you know, the delineation between the conceptualizations. I completely agree. And especially when talking with people and in issues of science communication, really highlighting that difference between extraction and extractivism is one of the toughest things. But Thank you so much. I mean, there's so much here and we could keep going for hours and hours and hours. And I'm sure we will while you're here at the university in person. But we've taken up a, a lot of your time on this beautiful, sunny afternoon, and we don't want to step on that too much. So at the end of every episode, there's something we like to do. Wait, what, wait, what, are, you, what are we going to do? I don't know. I might have a... <laughs> so at the end of every episode, we like to ask our guests the question. It's a sort of call to action for our listeners. They've been hearing this great conversation. They are curious. They are inspired. They want to do something. Uh, what can you recommend for our listeners that that they could do? Well, I love literature, but also I love movies. Um, but then I'm a bit afraid if I suggest something uh, that is in, only Portuguese. But um, one thing, I think you, you can find uh, very easily in the internet, there's this uh, movie, um, I think it was uh, shoot. Uh, was made in 1990s. The uh, title in Portuguese is Amazonian Shamas. That means uh, Amazon in flames, or or it's about the 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 history and unfortunately the killing of Chico Mendes. But I think it's it, it's a it's a novel. It's not a documentary, you know. So it, it has a story. So it's uh, very well done 
everyone uh, filmed. So I would say to, to see and to feel um, a little bit we've been talking here, I think that's could be a, a, a great uh, a great movie to to watch and um, and then to understand the Amazon, the struggle for land, uh, the conflicts and but also the, the, the humans and you know just not just uh, the uh, uh, conceptual things but the, the their life, uh, the people that uh, live in the Amazon, their struggles and their loves and their passions. and all. So I think that would be uh, something that, that I could recommend. Uh, of course, there's others, but I can't uh, recall one that I'm sure is translating to, into like English or with subtitles in, in English, right? So, but I'm sure this... I think the, the, the original title is um, Amazonia in, Sh Amazonia in Shamas, uh, Amazon in Flames, uh, or On Fire. Um, and it's, it's something that could be uh, something inspiring and, and touching in terms of to understand our, our uh, Brazilian struggles and, and reality. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that wonderful recommendation. Um, I think that sometimes it's really nice, you know, even though we are a more academic podcast, like sometimes movies can be so powerful. And I'm really glad that you recommended that type of resource. And, um, you know, I, I think that I definitely want to go check it out, even though my Portuguese isn't so strong. I'm definitely interested in seeing that, especially the way that you described it. I definitely look forward to checking that out. Is there anywhere else that you would like our listeners to find you? For example, are you on Twitter or do you want to tell people if you're on Twitter? I don't know. <laughs> well, first of all, I Thank you very much for this talk, for these conversations. We are in a huge political battle in Brazil these days because uh, clearly the new new fascist is there. So I would I would say to for those who are listening to us, just go beyond the land issues or the Amazonian issues and just look look for what's going on there uh, because it's not just something that is happening in Brazil, but for sure. Is part of this uh, extreme right uh, uprising. I don't know uh, that we really should fight against uh, because they are really threatening uh, democracy. They are really threatening rights that we, you know, so hardly conquer. So that's thing. Second. Thank you very, very much for, for the time. And uh, I, I have Twitter. Uh, it's my full name, but I'm not very good uh, on Twitter. But also we build a observatory. Uh, it's called Observatorio de Conflitos Socioambientais, Social Environmental Conflicts Observatory in Matopiba. And there's a website and we try to translate things into English and French so I think it's uh, it's also something that you, you, our listeners can can look into that and then can contact us uh, and, and and share with us uh, through that um, website.
Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, we'll make sure to link to all of those down in the show notes. And you heard it here first, people. If you tweet at him, no promises, but definitely check out the observatory. Yes. Thank you so much, Sergio. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you around more while uh, you are here with us at the university. And of course, keeping in touch generally in the future. I mean, we'd love to have you back on and keep diving further into these amazing things that you've been bringing out. Thank you guys for the opportunity for this nice chat and uh, the same. Hopefully we will have another chat, not necessarily on the broadcast, but you know, to, to keep exchanging because it's, it's very important uh, you know, to keep our hopes and to keep our, our energy and strength and passion. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. A huge thank you again to Sergio Sauer for coming on and having such a wonderful conversation with us. Please join us next month when we'll be talking with Usman Ashra about the unspoken social and environmental damages from a highly touted tree planting program in Pakistan. From the long, idyllic days of summer in Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophia Hagalani-Albov, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.